Welcome to KCADV's certification series. You're listening to Module 5, Part 2, Co-Occurrence of Domestic Violence and Substance Use. We hope you review the materials that have been sent, or you can check out certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Hello, everyone. Welcome to KCADV's certification series. This is module five, and I have Stephanie Ratliff from the University of Kentucky with me today. And we had previously, there was a, another section of, of module five where we were talking about crisis and trauma. And now we want to talk a little bit about substance use and some mental health and just sort of give folks a a little bit of an introduction so that we can be the best advocates we possibly can be. And as Stephanie mentioned to me last night when we were sort of talking through this, we really want to model good practice because it's something that we often ask as we're doing support groups ourselves or we're meeting with people individually. How do we get people just to hone in to the present moment to get people in a grounded space so that we can really start having some honest and intentional conversations and Advocates can sometimes be the worst clients, right? We're not always the best at self-care. We're not always the best at sort of taking moments for ourselves to bring us to the present moment. So Stephanie, you want to lead us a little bit into a a conversation? Yeah. So all of you out there listening, you may be having a lot of different thoughts running through your mind as you're, you know, getting ready to settle into this talk. But let's come into the present for a moment. And one of the things that we like to do with folks is something called grounding. And that's something maybe we'll talk about it later. But it's important to connect in the present. And one way we can do that is with our different senses. How we taste things, things that we smell, things that we touch, things that we see, things that we can listen to. Okay. So we're going to just, Diane and I are going to share a little bit with you about things that help us be grounded that we listen to. So oftentimes, sometimes with clients, survivors that I've worked with over the years, we will, over the course of the time that we're together, talk about what would be on your playlist, like your essential playlist for your life, like a music playlist, whether you use Spotify or you use an old-fashioned cassette tape or a CD taking you all way back now I'm kind of aging myself but Diane what would be a song that would be on your essential like music playlist well you know this stumped me just a teeny bit because as I was sharing a little bit before I'm not the best at sort of listening at the meaning behind songs but songs really can change my emotion and they can right. take me to certain times and places in my life that make me happy so my choice for this one was Rolling Stones waiting on a friend mm. I just really like that song. It just sort of makes me feel kind of, you know, easy and relaxed and slows me down. And I just really, I sort of love that song. I love that one too. I do. That's a good one. And I've not thought about that song in a long time. So I'm glad I gave you that little gift today. Right. I may have to steal your idea and add it to my playlist. And I think I'll probably end up putting it on Spotify on the way home today. So. You might have to teach me how to do that. I don't know how to do that. You made me grin when you said make cassette tapes because I, you know, it was such a nice thing when people would give you a playlist cassette tape. I said, we have a mutual friend, Rhonda, and she made me a holiday playlist cassette tape. And it makes me so, well, actually it might be a CD, but it makes me so happy. And I thought, 
this can be such a cool thing again that you do with the with the women mm-hmm. that you work with, but also with your peers of making a playlist for them. It was such a sharing moment. Yeah. So you took the time, you thought about them, right. you thought about what makes them sort of special. Yep. Yeah. I think a hard thing though about creating your own playlist is narrowing down because a lot of us have lots of songs or music that we like. So the one I'm going to identify today is a song by the Dixie Chicks called Wide Open Spaces. I like that song. I think it's just very uplifting and it helps you think about possibilities in life and how exciting that can be. And it's just a good song. It is a good song. We listened to that song. My husband and I took a trip cross country Mm. and we listened to that and Johnny Cash. I think we listened to those two CDs all the way from here to like Colorado. So, yeah. And see, the music helps you remember and connect to things that, like you said earlier, happen in life. And so for all of you out there listening, think about a song that makes you think about something positive or a moment that you like to kind of reminisce on. But if you've never made yourself your own playlist, think about doing that. That's a way to take care of yourself and you can pull it out in good times or in tougher times. And it helps you just kind of, you know, keep things in perspective. It's a nice way maybe too to unwind on your way home or coming into work just to sort of rejuvenate yourself and and sort of take a little you know do a little separation from some heavy stuff that you've been listening to before you kind of go home or or vice versa just to sort of gear yourself up so good. that's so important to have those processes yeah I tell people think about you know when you're on your way into work if you pass a bus station or a certain kind of building Think about, okay, I'm, I'm officially kind of starting work. And then when you leave and you pass by that particular site on your way home, you're gone. You know, works, we're leaving work back at work and I'm cranking up my playlist and I'm transitioning. I'm transitioning to home and getting myself there. And that's part of setting good boundaries. That will help you stay in this work a longer that's amount of time. Just sort of a symbolic, mm-hmm. you know, for a visual person. That's For a visual person. Yeah. 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 So may, if you're the listening person, maybe you use that playlist. If you're the visual, you're looking for that bus stop or what other building you may run by. Or maybe it's you keep, you know, spearmint gum in your car and you pop that in because you're a taste person. I don't know. Yeah. Just whatever works. Whatever works for you. Take some time to explore. That's right. Nice. Good. So we're going to get into this conversation if you're ready. The bulk of it really is going to be talking about substance use and the impact that that might have with the women that we're working with and the correlation between that and domestic violence, intimate partner violence. And so, Stephanie, a little bit, why are we even talking about this? Like, what is the scope? Is there a strong correlation between victimization and substance use? Or is it, what's your thoughts on that? You know, those who are listening to this podcast, you may be thinking or questioning us, thinking, I decided to do this work because I wanted to help survivors of intimate partner violence. Why are we talking about substance use? And it's because it's an issue that many of the folks that we serve and work with face. And we want to be programs that offer access and safety to all people who need it, not just those that don't have a substance use issue or have things going on in their life that for whatever reason, youth, they may not be worthy of services. So let me talk to you a little bit about the correlation. One thing I want to make sure everyone understands is Not all survivors use substances. In fact, many, many do not use substances at all. 
So be clear about that. However, we know that women who, and survivors, be it women, men, who experience violence or any kind of trauma, really, have higher rates of drug use, illicit drug use, and substance use, alcohol use. We know that. There's study after study that will solidify that. We know that's true here in Kentucky, too. Uh, If you were to talk to your director at your program or administrative folks, leaders in your program, they can even share with you the numbers of folks that come in who are report using substances, alcohol or drugs, whenever they come into the program. So we know that that exists. There are studies that talk about really the range of use by survivors who access domestic violence programs. It really ranges and it depends on the study, but we've seen numbers that range from like 22% up to 72%. Depends on how the study is done. And there have also been studies that have been conducted where we look at exit interview information, even client records from domestic violence shelters where survivors talk about and indicate working on their substance use, needing to work on their substance use. So we know that that's a need that survivors have as well. Another piece of information that's really key, maybe one of the most important things for you to take away from this podcast today, is that substance use does not cause intimate partner violence. Does not cause it. There is a strong correlation as Diane mentioned earlier. So when we see instances of intimate partner violence, many times their substance use being is a factor sometimes, whether it's the perpetrator or the abuser is using, maybe the survivor is using. So we see that correlation there, but it's not a causal correlation because we know that there are many abusers who don't use substances at all. So we can't say that causes domestic violence. Do some abusers use alcohol and drugs? Yes. Do some survivors use? Yes. So that's a little bit about that correlation, but we know that that's true. And when we think about what we know, too, from research is that in substance use treatment centers and providers, women specifically who have been interviewed over the years, they often report intimate partner violence in their past. So we know it's a bi-directional relationship sometimes. If you use substances, you may be a little more likely to be a a victim or experience intimate partner violence. And I think we're going to be digging into the reasons behind that as we go along today. But if you are a survivor of intimate partner violence, you may also be more likely to develop some uh, use to help you cope with what's going on in your life and the abuse and trauma. And I think we're going to be elaborating on that today some too, so I won't go too far ahead. Okay. No, you're good. You know, I think if anything, just as we begin to, as we move forward in this conversation, I don't think that talking with someone about substance use should just sort of be left on the table. And if it comes up, it comes up. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. We're wanting to really build some skill with our advocates to begin to look for signs, begin to open up the conversation. How do you open up that conversation? And knowing even as you said, it's not causal. Certainly safety can be compromised if a person is, you know, under the influence. Safety can be compromised if the abuser is using because it can sometimes escalate the intensity of the violence. And one thing is I was sort of reviewing some of the material 
that I have to say I've not done a very good job on is if I have a person who, from best as I can tell, is not currently using or struggling with use getting in the way, let's say, mm-hmm. but I know that there's intimate partner going on in their history or currently, I've never really prepared for the vulnerability of maybe looking for substances to cope, whether that is you know, drugs or alcohol or prescribed Mm -hmm. drugs or alcohol. I've never done any really sort of prep work. So it'd be interesting to me, but I've never done really any prep work of this is not an uncommon tool to reach for, to deal with the the emotions and the feelings. And so as an advocate, how do we talk about that as we're, as we're moving forward? Does that make sense what I'm saying? It absolutely does. I think, I think what I'm hearing you say is it's important that we discuss and think about How do we bring up and just kind of move into the space to have conversations with people about possible use or even if they're in recovery? And how do we do that well? And what are some tips and ideas for that? And we can certainly go there today. That's exactly. Thank you so much for that. I sometimes need people to tell me what I'm saying because I'm a little, I can be all over because I'm like trying to put all the ideas, like I have these dots in my head. And then sometimes I just need somebody to sort of succinctly (laughs) come in. And I also would like to touch on a bit of, it can be really difficult for a person to disclose that they are struggling with substance use. They're afraid that they might not be able to access services. They're afraid that they might be asked to leave the domestic violence program. Right. So so can you talk a little bit about barriers sometimes that programs might unintentionally maybe put up, might have the best, we talked about intentions in the last one, right. best of intentions to maybe deal with the issue. But sometimes if we go at our speed and not their speed, we can sometimes put these barriers up for an individual. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, I would love to, because the first step is to make sure that people can access programs. And if we don't make it clear that that's something we want to happen, then there's a group of folks, a population out there who can't access. And that's not what we want, because we're in it to help support people as they're trying to achieve some safety and remove themselves from crisis. So one of the first things is just making sure that Anything that a survivor, as they're considering coming into shelter or accessing outreach services or just calling our domestic violence programs for help, that we have some indications in materials, uh, be it on the website, on social media, on brochures, that really indicate, you know, all people are welcome to come here. And I know in one of the local programs, and Greenhouse 17 is one that does it, I know when I go to your website, I can see that there is a paragraph, some phrasing on there about we know that people, you know, it's hard to cope with intimate partner violence or domestic violence. And, you know, this is a safe place to heal. And I think you mentioned, you know, that you may use drugs or alcohol and this is a safe place to heal and we can help you with that healing. So that is kind of an, it kind of makes an, a survivor who's considering going to shelter or reaching out to the Greenhouse 17 for services. It lets them know, we know this is happening. We know this could be you that this is happening to. Come on over. We're happy to help you. We're trying. We're not here to fix you, but we know that happens. So you're putting it out there and normalizing the fact that We know substance use could be going on and that you can come here. That's not a problem. Come on in. So 
a lot of times the barrier can be how we message or not messaging that. And certainly we don't want to say we're substance use treatment providers. That's not what this is about. But you want to let folks know that we know there's a lot of issues that may be going on and come on in. We don't want that to be holding you up. And one of that's one of the reasons that's such a big issue for survivors is if you use, let's say you even have a substance use disorder, there's a tremendous amount of stigma. And when I say stigma, I mean people shame you. People tell you you're not worth getting services or we don't want your type around here. And so the stigma is very powerful and can keep people from accessing safety and services. It's a tremendous barrier to survivors also when they're thinking about and considering or need to call law enforcement for help or to go to the courts to get an emergency protective order or seek a domestic violence order to help them with achieving safety because they're afraid they're going to be judged about their use. And it's really a valid concern that they have. They very well may be judged because people judge all the time about that. So can we talk a little bit about that when you're working with an individual and you're starting to build that safety plan, right? We all do safety plans with our folks. We sometimes build safety plans on sort of a false narrative of, you know, right, of the, you know, in the perfect world. And we need to really be honest with what is going on in an individual's life at the moment, what a person is capable of of putting together in a plan, you know, who are their resources, what activities are going around. So again, we can get really laser focused sometimes on the, on the abusive person, but there's more to an individual's safety than just that person. Substance use in my mind can be one of the tantamount things that can really make a person vulnerable or the children. You know, so so I guess two things, and we can circle back to it as well. I want to not forget, we sometimes have our own bias and judgment, particularly around mothers, right? You know, oh, we're, yes. we're hard on moms. Oh, yes, we are. We're hard on them. And so I also think there's a point where we need to, as advocates, really look at ourselves. And as much as you said, come on in, we know you experienced this. We need to believe that. Like, we right. need to honestly believe that to be true. But let's go back to the safety plan piece. Building a safety plan with someone who is in active addiction or active use or have been sober, but it's not quite, you know, we're, we're not solid in that right. sobriety. What does that look like? Well, it really has to be individualized. I'm going to go back to what I said in the previous podcast that no cookie cutter approaches, especially when it comes to doing safety planning, individualize it. So if you can just remember to individualize your safety planning with the survivor in front of you, you'll be okay. And to use that word again, holistic. Think about the person as you're doing safety planning in a very holistic manner. Do they have children? You got to talk about that when you do the safety planning, right? Do you use substances? Are you actively using and if you are, we've got to talk with them about that. And I know that may seem really out of the box, but we can do out of the box things and we need to. That's part of individualizing. So knowing that they use, knowing some about what they use and safety planning around that can be very tailored to them. And what I mean, I guess the best way to kind of discuss that is to use some examples. If someone is an IV drug user, a lot of times they have patterns about when they think they might use, where they often will 
um, shoot up. And so we want to help them think through, okay, you've told me you're using. I know that. We've had these conversations. And that's happening right now. So let's plan around that because I'm worried that when you're using, that's going to make you more more vulnerable. Even though you have this domestic violence order that says your perpetrator or abuser can't come around or shouldn't be, I'm worried that they know your patterns of use and where you use and who you use with, and they will take out that opportunity to hurt you in some way. So let's safety plan around that. Okay, so, you know, you shoot up, let's say, you know it's going to happen on weekends. Let's say at least once on Friday, once on Saturday. Depends on the individual. Talking them through that, where do you usually do that at? Who's around you? Is there somebody around that you can say, keep an eye out for him? Can you provide a copy of your domestic violence order to somebody who's often with you when you use? And again, I know that this is not ideal, what I'm describing. Like you're probably sitting here listening and you're thinking, well, they just really don't need to be shooting up. But that's not the reality of substance use and addiction. We can see that and say that and think that all day long, but it's just not the reality of where some people are at. Now, also having them think through about needle exchanging. If they also use opiates, heroin, for example, doing some safety talking about, okay, do you have uh, a safety kit like some naloxone or Narcan that a friend would be able to get out and help you, you know, if you tend, if you're going to overdose? Those are really hard conversations, but need to be had if you can get to that place. The best way to kind of get used to that is practicing with your coworkers or, you know, just easing yourself into that. Cause I know, I know that these are really, really difficult, but it's part of the safety planning. When you're working with folks and you start from a presumption of what a person's activities are and you miss all that. Like I, one of the first things when I started doing shelter work in, in a domestic violence program, 15 ish longer years ago, I had this presumption of, who the women were that were coming to shelter. And in my head, in a very naive way, the relationship was ended. They were determined that the relationship was ended and there was no intention that there was any communication back and forth. Like I'm being a little extreme, but I was kind of in that space. And so if I'm safety planning with a person in that mindset, but I'm not preparing for, we're still having some conversation because we might be thinking of, of, reconnecting or we've got exchange children or, you know, so many things. If I'm cutting out that whole section of possibility when I'm talking about safety planning, I don't have a very good plan. Right. And so it's like having a fire drill, but you're presuming there's never going to be a fire. So, you know, there's really not a whole lot going on. I think the same with substance use and it is odd and it's almost like you're giving permission to do it. But I will say from the multiple trainings that I've gone to and listening to you right now, when you're doing kind of harm reduction work. You can build relationships with folks to really talk about what's happening. Where do your children go? Do you have Narcan with you? You know, what is your safety around, you know, going to these places and using both in the substance use and in the abusive person? But what I believe I'm hearing is if the trust can start to being built, the movement for sobriety comes on quicker. If we just aren't talking about it and we're just avoiding the subject, then we're not dealing with the matter at hand. So I think we have a better outcome with folks in their sobriety and and domestic violence if we open up the conversation, not if we pretend it doesn't exist and ignore it. Absolutely. And it's about being authentic advocates 
It doesn't good word. Oh, authentic advocates. It doesn't help the survivor at all if they're using and we just ignore that because we don't know what to do with it because it's going to cause recidivism. I mean, and again, it's about looking at the person holistically, but you talking about starting the work in domestic violence shelter and some of the naivete that kind of goes along with that, you're not unusual at all. I w- had the same experience and was had very different expectations of the survivors that would. And then after you're there for a week or so, you're like, oh, well, I was just completely wrong. And those of you who are listening and you're just starting this work, that's okay. It's We all learn and you'll learn as you go along. But people, you know, have a lot of different challenges in their life, health problems, mental health problems, financial problems, and substance use is one of those. That's true for our entire population across the U.S. And survivors are no different. They they use too. So we have to remember that. I'm glad you said that. It's no different really than the rest of the population. Certainly trauma adds to it. Right. But there's a lot of folks that are not in our shelters that use or just go out on a Friday night or Absolutely. whatever. But we can have some strong judgment on people that we are working with of of their drinking or drug choices or prescription drugs, you know. Yeah. And so Darlene Thomas, who's the director of Greenhouse 17, will often go, you know, look at yourself in the mirror, right? Like, so as you're kind of pointing fingers at other folks, we're no different, right? So, so always sort of do that sort of self-reflection work and not – Uh, marginalized folks that are needing help or or putting it into terms of deserving and undeserving folks. Everybody experiences it differently. Meet folks where they're at. That's right. Remember, everybody's worthy of safety and nothing that you do, or this is the mindset that I work from and I think most of our programs do as well, nothing you can do as an individual justifies somebody hurting you. Nothing. That includes using substances. You mentioned a little bit, and we don't have to go into great lengths about it because you, you kind of already said it, but I just wanted to um, perk people who are listening, the importance of understanding the perpetrator. We focus a lot on the behavior of the victim, but really using your time when you're establishing that history, when you're setting kind of goal planning, when you're connecting with a with the survivor in front of you, really ask questions about perpetrator behavior. And this really can show up with substance use, how somebody might be vulnerable, where they go, is substances used as a way of of keeping them stuck in the relationship? Were they their dealer, right? Like I've had a lot of women that'll come forward and say, I couldn't leave because this was my habit and this was my supplier. So I really couldn't leave. And if I did leave, then they were going to report me to the police or I was going to lose my kids. And it gets really, really complicated. So, so no, start asking questions about the perpetrator behavior around substances as well. Absolutely. So there's so many important little chunks of information that you shared just now that we could talk about forever, but I want to touch on some that are really important. Oftentimes, sometimes survivors are more likely to be able to talk some about their abuser. So that is one way that you can start kind of getting into that topic of conversation about substance use. You know, did your partner, ex-partner ever use alcohol? Did they use drugs? And you'll be surprised at what folks will share. And that's talking about somebody else, the abuser, not themselves. Okay. So sometimes they find that a little easier to talk about. 
we have to remember that, as you mentioned, the abuser is often very connected and intertwined with the dynamic of substance use that may be happening for an individual. We know that abusers are often the people who introduce survivors to use, not necessarily alcohol use, because a lot of people, you know, may do that. But when we look at more kind of a heavy, severe types of um, drug and alcohol use, so moving up into no longer just using marijuana, but going on to use heroin, you know, and using things in different ways of it being administered, the perpetrator plays a really significant role in that because they know that anything they can do to develop more power and develop more control over a survivor, they'll do it. And that includes introducing them to substances, getting them addicted to substances, being their dealer, and all the manipulation that comes around with that. They play a key role in that. And don't forget it. And it's something we should be asking about. If you really slow survivors down sometimes and listen to their stories and how that unfolds and then talk to them about use, you often will notice that, you know, as the abuse got worse, their substance use also escalated. And that's not, you know, an unusual experience. That correlation happens for different reasons. Also, and there's a great in your, those of you who are listening, there'll be some materials that you'll be able to access and refer to. And one of the things that are in those materials is a power and control wheel that is specifically designed to help you walk through how are drugs and alcohol used to exert power and control. And as Diane said, sometimes the abuser is the dealer. And if that's who you go to to get your substance, it's not, you just can't really walk away from that because you will maybe go into withdrawal depending on how severe your use is or addiction, how far, far along that substance use disorder is. They may also be threatening you, you know, if you use or if you don't use, then they make you feel bad if you use. So it's very intertwined. And when it should also be one of the motivations for trying to talk some with folks who come into shelter and survivors, talk with them about their use, because as long as that's happening, it can make them more vulnerable for further incidents and just make it difficult to be safe. Thank you for that. And so as you're working with someone or maybe somebody is called, you know, they're calling in for services or calling that crisis line, they're wanting maybe to, you know, shelter might be the option or, or just programming, but I guess I am probably thinking housing or, or shelter programming. And you're getting an indication, you're picking up on cues that a person may be under the influence or things that they're talking about makes you, you'll become more savvy in this work to sort of pick up on things. Sometimes the story doesn't quite align and not necessarily because of trauma, but just, you will just sort of pick up on that stuff. Or the person might just say, we're getting really good at building trust and rapport. And, and you're asking those questions. If you have a chance to listen to anything of Patty Bland, right. I love Patty Bland. She's passed away sadly, but I, I love her. But she talks a lot about how we ask the questions that makes it more normal for a person to come forward. So as opposed to do you use drugs or alcohol? Tell me what drugs and alcohol you use. It's a much different way of saying it. And you will 
will elicit such different answers. But if you're beginning to sense that for the newer advocate or actually for the seasoned advocate, I think there's always discussion on do we need to take care of the substance use first and then the domestic violence? Do we take care of the domestic violence first, right? Safety's paramount, but if we can't make much further plans because the substances keep getting in the way, we can't make solid decisions, we can't go get a job, like we're just not at a functioning place, it's that bad. Do you have any suggestions or do they happen or are they co-occurring? We take care of the domestic violence and the substances at the same time. Or are you going to tell me it's individual to every person you are? I can tell by your face. Mm, Here's my take on that. And I think um, most people who've been doing this work would agree with me. You can't wait on one or the other to be nice, neatly wrapped up and all taken care of before you work on the other one because they do co-occur. And the co-occurrence is not just that both could be happening at the same time, but they have co-occurring negative impacts and consequences at the same time. And if you're using substances and you're using, as you described, to a pretty, you know, a, a pretty a point that is harmful to your life, interfering with your functioning, whether that's caretaking with kids, keeping a job, qualifying for housing, legal problems related to it. If you have all those things going on, no matter how good of a job the advocates and staff at Greenhouse 17 or another program in the state do, if those other things are going on, it's going to make it really difficult for that survivor to achieve stability with housing, to keep a job so that she can be more financially independent and work on those financial goals and parent. And so you really, we can't really work on one and not the other when we know that both exist. Sometimes we don't know and it takes a while to figure that out. There used to be a lot of arguing of between providers though of, oh, you've got to get substance use treatment first until you get sober and in recovery. You can't work on being safe. Well, that's not true. I mean, how can you work on getting into recovery and going into residential treatment when your perpetrator won't even let you leave the house for an hour to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting? Right. You can't separate the two into silos. Doesn't mean you have to be an expert advocate at both things. It's more about paying attention, asking and encouraging survivors to talk about both. If that makes sense. It does make sense. And I think it's something as your team and your own program gets together to sort of talk about how you do handle things. Because I think we do sort of put out the language often of we know that that folks often have substance use issues, safety is paramount, but we sometimes present a little bit differently. We're going to do room searches of the shelter program. And even though the room search might be that you're looking for things and you know that that doesn't mean an automatic departure. Right. But people are going to go, oh my gosh, right? So our messaging sometimes can be a zero tolerance when really our intention might not be zero tolerance. Or it could be. And if you are that, then then I'm not saying that you can permit all kinds of drugs and alcohol to be Mm -mm. in the shelter program. You've got little ones running around. You have other folks that are trying to stay sober. And so you don't want to get in the way of that. But we've recently been trying to be conscious of not putting out there messaging that we're a sober living environment because we thought the messaging then wasn't fair to other folks who would get frustrated 
because drugs or alcohol were coming in the building. So we don't want that and we'll look for it. And there's going to be a conversation if there is, or maybe to go to treatment or depending on the situation, what it could be. But why set us up for this false reality? You can't even keep drugs and alcohol out of a prison. I don't know how we, you know, I don't know how we can expect to keep it out of a shelter. Doesn't mean we condone it. But at the same time, we want to work around it. We want to have a conversation about it. We want to help people around it versus this is bad. And if, and if it comes to our attention, there's going to be a punishment around this behavior. But it is complicated, you know, it, because you have to weigh the needs of the house versus the need of the individual. And that's where I think you just have to really dig in deep and, and make sure that you're not doing things as a quick reaction or a punitive place but that you're really trying to help this individual overcome things that have, you know, put them in the spot. And something you mentioned earlier was Patty Bland's approach that a lot of us have learned from and adapted to taking the action and the approach that is more universalizing or normalizing with the assumption that everybody uses and then kind of coming down from that. And so what I mean as an example, everybody, when after you get to a point and somebody enters shelter or an outreach service and you're talking with them, at some point you're going to ask some questions to help do a better job to be a better advocate. And that can include like, who do you have for support? Questions around that. It can include, you know, what kinds of child care do you have? Do you go to counseling? You know, a wide variety of questions. But something we can ask everybody after they get settled into the program is, so how much alcohol do you drink, let's say, a week? And if there's silence, you can just repeat the question. How much do you drink? Beer, you know, cocktails. About how many a week do you have? And then people may be silent for a minute. Then they'll say, well... I'd say probably a week I might have about three three drinks. So you've answered that question. For some survivors, as we mentioned earlier, not everybody uses, not everybody drinks. So if you try a couple of times and they keep saying, well, I don't drink, well, I don't use alcohol, I've never had a cocktail, you let it go and you move on to the next thing. You want to also ask that question around drugs. And we use the word substances a lot in the podcast, but it's drugs, illicit drugs, prescription drugs, uh, legitimately prescribed prescription drugs. You want to ask about those too. Tell me about what all you use. Do you, you know, do you have any prescriptions you're using? Do you use marijuana? Just ask it straight up and ask it to everybody. Don't make assumptions that somebody who looks this way or who is a certain race or a certain age that they're using and that the person who appears to be 50 doesn't use. So I don't need to ask them. Don't make those assumptions because that's what get, that gets us into trouble. But ask, ask everybody like Patty Bland directed us to. And then we're more likely we get that conversation rolling. We encourage them that and then we can talk to them about, okay, so you are taking this kind of opioid, you know, that's being prescribed to you. Let's talk about do where's a safe place that you can store that while you're here, because we want to make sure kids don't get into that. Would you rather us keep it? You know, offering them those options and having those conversations. Oh, you smoke. Let me tell you, we've got a designated place here at the shelter. We want people to go to for that because we've got kids here and it's a smoke free environment. So opening up those conversations and letting people know what are the resources here? If somebody ends up telling you, oh, I don't drink 
but I used to drink, but I'm, I've been sober since 15 years. Well, that's going to be an important person to let them know that this can be a, a little bit of a challenging place sometimes if you're in recovery because it's a different atmosphere and we want to make sure you've got support around. You know, we do take a group of women or survivors to NA meetings on this night. We take folks to AA meetings on this day. Let us know if you need a ride to get to one of those. Or let us know if you need to talk to somebody if you're feeling like, you know, you're having a hard time with, um, you know, managing your recovery today. And look, you and I talked about this maybe, I don't know, how long did that go on? Four minutes or something? Yeah. You can do that in as quickly as that much time. Absolutely. Don't make a big deal out of it. Just ask. Yeah. Encourage them to come to you. Yeah. Because that, as you pointed out, it's hard. It's a... It's very hard. You got kids in program. You don't want a kid watching or seeing somebody overdose. Right. You don't want somebody watching somebody shooting up. I wouldn't if I, my kids, you know, nobody wants that for their kids. So how do you work that? You let people know about the resources. You open up that door so they come and talk to you when they're struggling. Maybe they won't. I know I'm making it sound easy. It's not easy. I know this is really difficult. It is hard work. And I, I also want to really encourage advocates that are listening in. So much of the work can be happened by those small moments that you begin to build relationship and trust. It's not just during the group. It's not just during the individual session that you've scheduled on Tuesdays and Thursdays with that person. But all those nuanced times that you have with someone, don't miss those opportunities as you're helping someone get kids ready for school or you're helping someone do dishes or you're, you know, outside playing kickball or doing whatever it is you're doing. Use those times to build trust so that you have the, it's almost an honor that someone bestows upon you to be able to trust you with some really scary, serious stuff that they themselves sometimes have a hard time admitting as well. For some reason, when you were talking and you were saying, don't forget to ask, you know, don't presume who you know who's using and who doesn't, right? We say that with domestic violence folks all the time. Don't presume you know what's going on in someone's home. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm throwing us way back. Did you ever read The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan? Oh, yes. Right? Yes. So, so if you've never read The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, it's an oldie but a goodie. Read it. Uh, read it. You know, get your historical foundation in this work. But one of the things they had like opened up some, all the women's purses, you know, as sort of a research. And they were finding, you know, so many women were having those after work cocktails or yeah. cocktails before their husband came home because right. a lot of women were stay at home and they all had prescription, prescription right. drugs of whatever was in the day. I don't right. know, Xanax or Valium, whatever. Yeah. And so we thought, right, the fifties were this beautiful time of everybody had two cars and a house and we were all back from World War II. But really the women were all not in a happy place. No. They had no control over their lives. No. And they were all all having a few cocktails too many and numbing themselves That's to right. a very unhappy life. Getting ready for the <laughs> round two of when that husband comes home. That's right. And, uh, you know, we do a lot of different things to cope. Some of us eat a lot. That's me. Some of us exercise a lot. Some of us shop a lot. Some people use. And we just are doing what we do to survive life and cope and work through life and survivors are no different they've got a lot more they got a lot of challenges so yeah. they're just trying to make it work be there for their kids or just 
be there for even if they don't have kids. Absolutely. And also don't rush to the point that because someone uses, they all need to go to residential no. treatment. Not everybody no. needs to go to residential treatment. Just for some clarity, you have some really good just definitions in your PowerPoint. And part of the reason I wanted to bring them up is I do think that some of them are on the test and we want to make Lisa Gabbard happy, even though I'm sure folks will will read their materials as well as as listen to this. But in substance use disorder, can we just sort of go through a little bit of, you've got like addiction, distortion, and perception, just sort of touch on some of those? Yes. So for folks who have gone beyond just using substances, because there's a lot of people who just use socially, you know, they'll have cocktails on the weekends or they use socially, and it doesn't really in- interfere with necessarily their functioning of life. But when we start seeing the use interfere more with those daily responsibilities, be it keeping a job, being able to drive or, you know, work equipment, machinery, take care of children, or maybe your health is suffering because you use something, that's becoming more severe and it's getting closer to qualifying for, you know, using that diagnostic language of a substance use disorder of some sort. And there's a lot of different kind of criteria that we look at just to kind of inform us, you know, is somebody getting to a point where their use is more severe that we need to be more concerned about or help them be aware of? And so using when you know it's harmful, you know, using this even though you know that it's maybe going to cause some health problems or your safety is at risk because you're driving when you're under the influence, That's a sign, that's a piece of criteria that we'd want to, you know, when somebody's getting to that point, we want to be aware of that and help them be aware of that as well. Also, I mentioned withdrawal earlier today. People, if they've been using for a long time, be it alcohol, be it an illicit drug, also truly legitimately prescribed drugs, if people don't have that substance staying in their body, they can start with experiencing withdrawal symptoms. And, you know, you may be asking, well, what are, what are those? What are withdrawal symptoms? Well, somebody might have the shakes or delirium tremors when they're starting to withdraw. They may have nausea, diarrhea, um, just shakes, hallucinations. So really bad feelings, um, you know, really bad physical feelings in in addition to the emotional and mental experiences that come with withdrawal. And when somebody doesn't use and they go into withdrawal, that's an indication to us that physically the substance use is pretty severe. And we would use that more to lead us to the summation that there's a disorder there. Also, Tolerance is something I make sure I talk with people about. So, you know, the easiest way to explain that is to use an example. So if you and I, two years ago, we used to go, say, to a Mexican restaurant and we would enjoy one margarita and we felt a buzz. That's what we did two years ago. But now when you and I meet up on, let's say, Thursday night at the Mexican restaurant to have that same buzz we got to drink three margaritas we've increased our tolerance we need more of the substance to feel that way physically and emotionally so tolerance is another thing for us to pay attention to so that's a little bit about substance use disorder 
And again, people can develop all of those pieces that I just described, even if they're being prescribed, legitimately prescribed a substance. So when someone has an accident and they're in the hospital and receiving morphine, sometimes people can become dependent on morphine. Or when you're prescribed opioids to help alleviate physical pain, you can become dependent on that. The body learns to, you know, use that. So that's a point that's important to make, I think. I'm glad you brought up the prescription drugs, too. You brought it up in the beginning piece because I do think there's a, I don't know, a, a denial maybe, both by staff and people that we work with. Of, I don't even need to address the prescription side of things. A doctor has given that to us. That's just fine. But we sometimes see a lot of folks come in with lots of prescription drugs. And so has there been a long-term pain management that's going on? We have sometimes a very transient community of folks, not always, but sometimes that they're seeing different doctors. I know there's better communication now between you know, who's prescribing what. And, and if you go to Lexington and then you go to Louisville or you go to, you know, Paducah, you know, that that should sort of follow. But I do sometimes worry that because we're seeing multiple doctors, we're getting multiple diagnosis and multiple different types of, of prescription medication that might not be partnering well with each other, or you just been on it too long. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, a good provider would work with you on that and things and, you know, help somebody come off that or ease off of it. But we know that doesn't always happen. We've got, you know, these billion dollar lawsuits around the prescription drug makers right now that's all in the news. And it's definitely a money making business in some ways. And the other thing we had to remember is that for survivors, a lot of them do experience severe physical injuries, severe due to violence and abuse. And when that happens and you go to an emergency room or you go to your provider or end up in the hospital, you're going to be prescribed an opiate or another type of painkiller oftentimes, and you need it. But some women I've worked with have described, you know, I got that and I used it and I probably could have stopped using it because I was starting to heal physically, but it helped me escape. So I kept using it. And then I ran out and they wouldn't give me any more. So I went to somebody else and I got another prescription. And it takes a while to get those, to hear those stories and for somebody to trust enough to tell you those stories. But it's, it does unfold that way sometimes because women are prescribed and survivors are prescribed prescriptions more because they have more physical ailments and violence. And so you're prescribed medicine. Another residual form of abuse that can take place due to the intimate partner mm-hmm. there's a lot more i don't mean to repeat exactly what you just said but due to the injuries to the body we often sometimes then get into a being prescribed substances that we never would have gone to um, but then it kind of it just keeps building the, the impact of the domestic violence just keeps building mm-hmm. yeah. it does it does it's a it's one more peace that's caused by the violence that we don't think about that a lot getting back to my original question that I started off you know people are listening to this probably today and thinking why are we talking about substance use well when you're getting hurt by your abuser you may end up getting prescribed medication or you may have to have surgery or your jaw gets wired shut and there's lots and lots of other ugly pieces I could mention that I'm not going to because it's not necessary But they're going to be prescribed medication for that, and it's going to be opioids or some other painkiller. And people get 
it's easy to get hooked on some of those. Right. I know we're sort of coming to the end of our conversation. So I wanted to sort of end on, I liked the mini safety sobriety wellness plan that was sort of in the notes. And I just thought that would be a really good end piece of, as you're working with someone and you're creating the sobriety plan, these are kind of the topic points or the header points that you want to touch on. And something that you had said earlier, you were talking about somebody who had been sober for so many years. One thing I do want to just highlight, because I've experienced this in our own program, sometimes folks are, have been sober for, you know, six months. Amazing. You know, right. That's that, amazing. That's amazing. But sometimes we can feel kind of confident in our sobriety. It's kind of like me on a diet, right? I've been doing really good on this, but now I'm slipping because I'm overconfident that I can handle certain situations. So make sure as, as a seasoned advocate that we're all trying to be that because somebody has remained sober for a period of time that we don't let up the support system that they need. Right when you begin to feel you've got this tackled is when it can kind of creep back in. Certainly living in a domestic violence shelter can be an added stressor, in and out of relationships, having to go to court. All those things can be added stressors. So don't go, well, check, we've done this. Like we've got this under our belt. Now we're going to move on to other things. Keep honing in and touching base on the, on the sobriety. So yeah, a little bit of the sobriety wellness plan. So it's really about just again, using my word, I guess it's my word of the day, being holistic and attending to people. And so if somebody is in recovery, full blown recovery, and they're sober and they don't use anymore, that's awesome. You can't think though, oh, check. No, it's really important to be focusing on their wellness and talking to them about that, talking with them through, you know, the challenges while they're at shelter the stress that can contribute to, um, you know, maybe put their recovery a little more at risk. So you got a court date coming up next week. That can be kind of tough. Let's talk about how to up your wellness and things as we prepare for that. So really attending to that and making sure that people have what they need and that they know about the resources that the programs offer, be it yoga, be it artwork or quilting, be it get outside and walk, go to something more formal like the 12-step meetings that may be available. You want to talk to a counselor, we can hook you up with that. Really letting them know about that full array of resources and talking with them. You know, this is very basic, but just like you would make a grocery list. Okay, let's talk about what's coming up in the next week. What do you need to help you do well? What do we need to do to make that happen? And if they're like, well, I really need quiet time in the mornings by myself, peace and quiet. And I'm worried about how I'm going to get that when I'm sharing a room with this family. Okay, let's sit down and talk about how do we strategize around that and make sure we can try to figure out a way to get that. And I know for people listening, you're thinking, gosh, this is really hard. There's so many people we serve and how do we do this? Again, give yourself some grace. And we don't expect perfection. Just trying to share ideas. But this is what we mean, having those simple conversations. What can we do while you're here to help you stay on track and, you know, have those conversations? Talking through about how to maybe reduce your use while you're in shelter, that's really kind of out of the box going there once again. But that's important because you're not going to be able to come and go constantly to go see a dealer and then come back and use and 
you know, that's just not how that's what doesn't need to happen. And so being having frank conversations about that, if you know enough about what's going on with a person to have those conversations about reducing harm and use while they're in there. And some people, when they come, it may be that you find you need to connect them with an outside provider for a while. And that's part of a, you know, this sobriety and wellness plan. Maybe they need to go somewhere and detox for a couple of days. So you support them in it and make sure they understand they can come back when they're done detoxing or whatever service it is that they're going to go to. Because sometimes people do need something a lot more significant depending on where they are in their use. I like that phrasing because sometimes we will recommend or it has been recommended that they go elsewhere to detox or maybe a 30-day plan or whatever. And we really try to frame it as this is just a part of our program too. Even though it's a different place, you're going to come back when you're exited from that program. So this is not a departure. This is just another step. It's just another phase in that programming. And you needed this, you know, you needed this component where not everybody else does. That's right. And just letting them, again, normalizing that, having those conversations. And, you know, they may be fearful when they hear about going to detox or to another program because maybe they've been working with an advocate for a long time and that's who they have connected with. And so, like you said, letting them know it's just another part of the program, another part of the process. We're still going to be with you. We're not going to leave you. You still get to do this other step with us and we're going to help you with all of that. So reassuring them that and really putting this together in a good way. And that leads me to another part of the developing a safety and sobriety plan or a wellness plan. It's really important for advocates and our programs across the state to have some people that they really prefer to send survivors to. People, providers, professionals outside of the domestic violence programs who understand the dynamics of intimate partner violence, all of those pieces, you know, that can be caused and cause people problems due to the violence they've experienced. And so forming partnerships with people that we trust as advocates outside of the agency that we know if we send somebody to, they're going to take care of them and they know some because survivors have had some bad experiences sometimes with agencies that they don't want to go back to. So we can kind of Again, that's a lot of individualizing, but it's important, I think, if we can have some trusted providers that we know we can, there are go-to places for survivors to go to. It can be great support for us, too. So as as you're newer in the advocate, bounce those ideas off folks, you know, ask them questions. You know, this is an ongoing educational piece that you will be doing in this work. And so, you know, hone in on skills. Go talk to, you know, a recovery center. Get more information on the impact on the body and the mind and and the emotional well-being of of substance use. This is always an, an endeavor that we continue to grow in. And I think that's sort of the exciting part about being in an advocate. It's really never complete, right? It's never done. We're always changing. We're always evolving. We're always learning new things. I've learned so much and I've got a lot of learning left to do. And if the time you stop learning or you think you know it all, you're kind of dangerous. That's a good point. That's a good point. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for being here today and participating in KCADB certification series. And um, we thank you all for listening in and tuning in and take care.